Did you see any white people in there waiting an hour and 32 minutes for a plate of spaghetti? Huh? And how many cups of coffee did we get? You don't drink coffee, and I didn't want any. Man, that woman in there poured cup after cup to every single white person around us. But did she even ask you if you wanted any? We didn't get any coffee that you didn't want and I didn't order. And that's evidence of racial discrimination. Did you notice that our waitress was black? And black women don't think in stereotypes? Everybody and welcome to another episode of the Cinema Psych Podcast, the podcast where psychology meets film. I am your host, Dr. Alex Swan, and we are going to be talking about a weird kind of movie in history, we'll say, in modern cinema history. That film is Crash. Came out in 2004, and it won the best Oscar, or the, I should say, the best picture Oscar for that year. And I gotta say, it has audiences divided, and I'm pretty sure we're gonna get into uh, some of the reasons about that today with our guest host, uh, so if you haven't seen Crash, or maybe you just didn't really uh, pay attention to who won the best Oscar, best Oscar, I did it again, who won the best picture Oscar in 2004, or February 2005, but Crash came out, and it's uh, wrote and directed by Paul Haggis, and uh, it's got a huge Cast. I think that was one of the big things uh, going with it. So we've got Don Cheadle, we've got Sandy Bullock, we got Tandway Newton, uh, who formerly went by Tandy Newton, Matt Dillon, Jennifer Esposito, Brendan Fraser, where has he been? Terrence Howard, Ludacris. Yep, that Ludacris. Uh, Michael Pena. In, uh, he's my favorite character in the whole in the whole movie. Ryan Philippi, uh, in a role that he was literally born to play, probably. And Lorenz Tate. So lots and lots of people. And then there are some like other bit actors like William Fickner's in it. Keith David's in it. Whew. Anyway, the movie follows the this this large ensemble cast through a um i don't know a couple of day period about a one or so day period uh in LA uh following two LAPD officers Matt Dillon and Ryan Philippi uh a TV director and his wife who have a run in with the LAPD and um a uh, Middle Eastern man who I think he's uh, Persian uh, who has a uh, connection with Michael Pena's character uh, and uh, I think Michael Pena's character's name is Daniel Ruiz and uh, the 
the two um, main antagonists, I guess we'll say, in the movie, uh, sort of drivers of conflict, Ludacris and Lorenz Tate, play um, carjackers, and um, Lorenz Tate's character is Don Cheadle's detective character's um, brother. And we find out how all of these stories are connected in this movie. And it all has to do with a series of crashes. How these um, different people come together and crash into one another. And in some ways, uh, literal. uh, But in most ways, metaphorical, of course. And we will explore that in this episode. So stay tuned. We're going to jump right in it. My guest host today is Dr. Karina Malavanti. Karina is a senior lecturer of psychology and neuroscience at Baylor University. Prior to coming to Baylor, she was an assistant professor at a small liberal arts university in Tennessee, where she was honored with the Research Advising and Student Advocacy Awards. This is a hard one to say. At Baylor, she has been recognized for excellence in teaching. She teaches introductory courses in psychology and neuroscience and upper-level courses in cognition, perception, and film. My favorite, Karina, welcome to the show. I'm excited to be here. I am so happy to have you on because it's been a while since we've had a uh, cog and neuro person on, and I must say it's it's been, it's been a long time coming uh, for you to be on the show. So... As I do with all of my guests, um, regardless of where you sit on the film spectrum, film-loving spectrum, um, before we jump into our main topic of Crash tonight, I did want to pick your brain a little bit on um, your thoughts on film in general, you know, films, going to movies, that sort of thing. And because I, I know you have a little tidbit up your sleeve here, why do you use film in your teaching? So I love using film. Anytime I have student-led discussion sections, one of the really neat parts of my job at Baylor is that I can teach upper-level courses that are pretty small, in between 14 to 28 students, I would say, each section. And because of that, these classes are really rich for discussion. So film is a kind of a natural way for us to get into discussion and to, you know, empower students to come prepared to discuss film um, and to come up with more examples than what they're seeing. So I like to use film in social psychology courses, cognition courses, psychology and film. That class, I get to completely just use film. And I think with appropriate content warnings and dedicated student leaders and they get to pick their own movies, so they're really excited about it. Um, you know, I found film to be pretty powerful for talking about the human condition. Yeah, I was just about to say, you know, even when parts of film can be problematic or can be controversial, students are pretty adept at picking up the nuances. I, I'm so glad you brought that last bit up because, uh, well, the, the last two bits. So the tidbit that I was uh, teasing there was Psych and Film, of course, was Psych and Film. And, of course, anytime somebody is on this show, Psych and Film, we're going to have to stop and talk about it for a second. So we'll do that yes. in just a second. And then the the last, last part that you said that, you know, films can be problematic And it's essentially a learning experience, an immersive learning experience for um, how different people 
perceive the human condition, put it on film, and then we as viewers get to pick that apart. And of course, uh, the ones that are problematic, like some might think Crash is, they can look through it and that gives them a, a chance to critically analyze a piece of fiction. So, I mean, I, that's, that's a great way to look at it. So, back to Psych and Film. So, I want to pick your brain a little bit more about this before we jump into Crash. So, what led you to jump at the chance to do Psych and Film course at Baylor? And what kind of things do you have them do in this class? So, I don't pretend to be a film buff at all. But I love watching TV and film. And so this was an opportunity of somebody who had retired. And this was kind of an unmanned course when I got to Baylor. Mm -hmm. And the department chair kind of was saying, like, if anybody wants to pick up this course, I know that students will take it. And it has never not filled. We always have students that are excited to take this course. And it actually is not included in our psychology major. So our students take this completely as elective. Uh, as an elective course. Yes, um, that's that's awesome. And what kind of things do you do in, in the course as they go um, through the semester? Oh, we do so many cool things. So we, um, you know, sometimes do this class face-to-face pre-pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> but even in the online space, we've been able to do this pretty well. But I have students, you know, I, I give kind of a roster or a repository of of films that students can choose. I give them the IMDb blurb for it, um, the ratings, how long they are. They get to choose what film they're going to come in with at least 10 discussion questions. And they're going to mm-hmm. lead completely the, core, the, the class discussion on it. Of course, I screen their questions as well, um, <laughs> just, just to make sure we're all on the same page. Um, and I also have students do their own analysis project outside of participating in class discussions and leading class discussions. So they will, on their own time, uh, screen a film and present a presentation on that film and let us know a little bit more about the the skills they picked up used in, in our class mm-hmm. um, through the discussions. But also, you know, just to let us know a little bit more about some of the really neat films that they're watching. That's really cool. And they can they get to choose whatever they want for the second one. So not from they a do. pre-screened list or a pre-provided list. Oh, I love that because that's where you get some of like the real indie crushes or yes. or some anime or, yes. or or other things like that that really, you know, don't make it into classic Western film lists, of course. And right. I imagine there's probably the uh, occasional foreign language film. Yes. All of those. I've had all of those show up in that last in that project. It's pretty much the final exam project for our class and our and the students then peer peer review and evaluate. Um, And I just love I love when they're able to hear their fellow peer be super excited about a film and what they learned. I love that film class. And I got to say, if um, I would probably make it my mission um, to watch every single film that was uh, part of that second project. And so I think I'd be just be watching new films over and over. So many, so many. Be like, oh, uh, that's a new one added to the list. Oh, that's a new one added to the list. And Alex, if I can interject, I mean, my husband is a film buff and he loves the student recommendations. Oh, yes, that is awesome. Excellent. Yeah, it that's a that'd be a slippery slope for me because I mean, like your experience, 
uh, it would be a complete. So when I teach it, it's a complete elective and um, it would it would fill up. Because of just how awesome it just how awesome of an idea it is, you know? Yes, absolutely. So now that we've talked a little bit about that kind of stuff, get get the listeners um, where we are at. Let's talk about why Crash was on your radar for this episode. So what what are the reasons for our discussion of Crash today? So I actually love assigning Crash in a couple of different courses. Um, I'm not a film buff, as I said before, but I do love ensemble casts on TV shows and in movies because I think they can highlight multiple storylines really well mm. and in a way that's different than most, you know, most typical uh, stories. So one of the reasons why I enjoy using this particular film is that it highlights so well multiple complex stories. And when your overall goal is for students to better understand themselves and others, film in general, but also this film in particular, I think kind of challenges us to do that. So this movie does a really good job of kind of showing how mind and behavior can be incredibly complicated um, and no one ends up being 100% quote unquote good in this movie. There is no unflawed character. We're all imperfect and we're all trying to do our best in a world and in a system that's flawed and particularly for people of color. Yeah, I 100% agree. And especially about the um, the good moniker. It's, uh, it's wild when every single main character in, in an ensemble like this says one thing at least that you're just like, oh my god, did they just say that? Oh, <laughs> and 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 it leaves you like really, uh, dumb, uh, I don't know, taken aback, I suppose, aghast, um, at uh, the fact that those kinds of moments in a in a, in an ensemble film like this, um, really take redeeming qualities out of every single character, and even ones that you did think were redeeming are now washed away. And of course this brings us directly into um, the sort of elephant in the room with respect to crash, which is it's, it, it's not a popular film for a lot of reasons. Um, and it's a controversial film uh, among psychologists like you and I, because of its depiction of many aspects. So I want to jump into a wade into some of these psychological concepts in the movie. Uh, so we can sort of get better understand this controversy while also sort of ignoring the fact that, you know, maybe it shouldn't have won best picture Oscar <laughs> because <Yeah. laughs> even though it's, I think decently acted. It's a bit over the top. It's it's. I suppose it could have been better if it had been maybe a mini series. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you with that. So, what are uh, Karina? What are the um, ideas? The main psychological ideas that a film like Crash can be used for. So. 
just from the onset, right, we know that we're going to be talking about group dynamics and stereotypes, prejudice. Um, we're going to be talking about in-group and out-group, um, microaggressions, systemic racism. So there are just so many topics that can be touched on on this film. And it really, the way that you approach this film as a psychology educator might depend on the class that you're teaching it in. It might depend on your student interest. Um, and so I have seen this conversation go many different ways in these classes. Okay. Yeah. So let's take, I, I would say, let's take the the big one here, which is um, racial prejudice. Uh, well, let's, we could take it in order here. Racial stereotypes, racial prejudice, and then discrimination, um, racial discrimination. <clears throat> so we have a set of characters that um all intertwine right uh so one of the biggest uh racial stereotypes or well i'll say one of the big racial i don't know, maybe not the biggest racial stereotype is uh sandra bullock's character she plays the wife of the district attorney who's trying to get reelected. um they get carjacked and instead of you know dealing with uh, the trauma in a more appropriate way. Um, she goes on a bit of a tirade, and pretty much all nine nine non-white groups thrown under the bus. Um, no, no real remorse. I need to talk to you for a second. Can you just give me a minute, right? Find Flanagan, will you? Now. Yes, sir. Yes, hi. I want the locks changed again in the morning. You want? Look, why don't you just go lie down, huh? Have you checked on James? Well, of course I've checked on James. I've checked on him every five minutes since we've been home. Do not patronize me. I'm... I want the locks changed again in the morning. Shh, it's okay. Just go to bed, all right? Do you know what? Didn't I just ask you not to treat me like a child? I'm sorry, Miss Jean. It's okay, I go home now. It's fine. Thank you very much for staying, Maria. You're welcome, no problem. Good night, Miss Jean. Good night. We'll see you tomorrow. I would like the locks changed again in the morning. And you know what? You might mention that we'd appreciate it if next time they didn't send a gang member. A gang member? Yes, yes. Well, you mean that kid in there? Yes, the guy in there with the shaved head, the pants around his oh, ass, the prison tattoo. Those are not prison tattoos. Oh, really? And he's not going to go sell our key to one of his gangbanger friends the moment he is out our We've door. We've had a really tough night. I think it'd be best if you just went upstairs right and now. And what, wait for them to break in? I just had a gun pointed in my face. You lower your voice. And it was my fault because I knew it was going to happen. But if a white person sees two black men walking towards her and she turns and walks in the other direction, she's a racist, right? Well, I got scared and I didn't say anything. And 10 seconds later, I had a gun in my face. Now, I am telling you, your amigo in there is going to sell our key to one of his homies. And this time it'd be really f***ing great if you acted like you actually gave a shit. Upon re-watching that scene, I was like, she'd be called a Karen these days. Oh, definitely. <laughs> Definitely. I, I feel, you know, rewatching this film, I do get a lot of new feelings. Um, every time I watch it, actually, my husband remarked the other day, how many times have you watched this film? A lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, but when I rewatch her character in particular, I, I feel like some 
some of my students would identify with some of what she was saying. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the fact that like I was scared and I didn't say anything and then look what happened. And, you know, with this racial reckoning that we've been having in the U.S., I do think that sometimes we have that type of um, acknowledgement of, wow, like I did feel I, I do have some of these stereotypes and I do have some of these prejudicial actions that occur. And, you know, what do I do with those feelings when I know that they're wrong? In her case, she didn't acknowledge it. And it it really, there's not a lot of redemption for her in this movie at all. Um, (laughs) But it it does make me a little sad um, to kind of see it every time. Yeah. And I, again, this goes, this takes me back to something a little bit longer. We, we, I don't think we really get much of cl- much closure with her at all right. um, because she's now no longer central to the story. She sort of drives um, Danielle Ru- uh, Daniel Ruiz's um, his story. Right. Um, and, and so, yeah, she's just left as this she's just left as this really bigoted person. Um, and we get nothing, we get nothing else from her. And it's, it's a really strange role for Sandra Bullock to, uh, to take, but I, I can, I can imagine. And then, so when, when we don't get closure and then, as you said, uh, some people might feel validated by her experience, they don't actually get the learning, um, that would generally come from a character like that's journey right um with the conflict resolution and all that stuff and so she becomes this one-dimensional character and that is one of the biggest criticisms of this movie mm-hmm. right yes. yes so ta-nehisi coates uh wrote when the film came out um that the film was con- is the film is considered by him to be shallow uh that none of the um i mean there's some gender uh there's there's some gender and sexism stuff but it's mostly the racial makeup of Los Angeles and um you know he said that that nobody's racist stuff is reckoned with it's all just left out there on the table nothing comes of it you know i i do feel that when this movie was released you know in what the early 2000s mm-hmm. uh and obama you know was about to be elected you know i think that the us was thinking we are in this post racial world nobody out there is actually acting like quote unquote these people in the film and you know i think that again watching this film more than 10 years 15 years oh my gosh it's been a really long time since this movie has been made yeah 2004 uh, yeah yeah so it's been a really long time since this movie has been out there and it hurts me to say this but i kind of think that we are you know, in this last couple of years, we actually do see some of this happen a little bit more than we would have considered in that mid 2000s. 
what do you think? Yeah, that is a great point. Um, I th- and, and that's the the main reason why I thought uh, Sandra Bullock just reminded me of Karen just listening mm-hmm. to her tirade. So, you know, that's a last two or three year name meme. Uh-huh. Um, but I think you're right. This idea of um, this post-racial society, we're, you know, Rodney King, 1992, Can't We All Just Get Along, which also features heavily the LAPD. Um, this this idea that, you know, Bill Clinton was able to bring everybody together, bring everybody to the table, and we, we got this, and 9-11, we're one America kind of thing. And I think the Academy gave this one best picture, uh, because the Academy wanted to feel better about itself. Yeah. And the Academy has not done a lot of things to feel good about itself, even recently. So maybe they needed to win that year. <laughs> they needed a feel good story of the year. Yeah. Because like n- it, you, nothing's redeemable about these characters, as we said, they all say something awful or do something awful. Um, and I th- and and even though Ludacris's character has a redemptive um, action in the end when he drives the Cambodian Cambodian um, refugees, uh, which were being trafficked, who were being trafficked. Right. Sorry, um, he lets he drives to Chinatown, Chinatown and lets them free, but. The only reason that was able to occur was because he ran over a Korean man, dropped him at a hospital, and before that, hijacked a car at gunpoint. So, yeah, I don't know if the last action absolves the previous two. Uh, from an omniscient standpoint, as the viewer, maybe you grant that to him because you you know about how the Korean guy was a trafficker. Um, mm-hmm. But if you're, if you're actually place yourself actually in the shoes of ludicrous, um, not only would it be ludicrous, um, but I don't know if you get to be like, ah, I did great today. Time to go steal another car. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, my heart always, you know, almost explodes when he does release them because the other choice in that, in that decision in that specific decision was to make money off of, you know, even though he hadn't been part of the original trafficking, he could have made money and he was trying to make money. Yeah. And I was, you know, at least then he had some kind of conscious, but you know, and so I, that feeling, though, that my heart explodes like, oh, my gosh, I'm so happy he let them go is exactly what the Academy wanted. You know, it's like, oh, of course, they're going to end up with he let them go. Um, and that's a feel good part of the movie. But you're right. You can't take that without also regarding everything else. Right. Um, same thing with uh, Ryan Philippi's character, who has the exact oh. opposite arc yeah. to his character, because. You know, he is unhappy with Matt Dillon's um, behavior, especially toward um, uh, Terrence Howard and Tandwi Newton's um, character. I really hope I'm saying the new pronunciation of her name right. Um, 
she recently, I don't know if you, if you know this, um, Karina, but she recently changed her name to be, um, more in line with the original spelling and meaning of her name. Oh, that's fantastic. I did not know yeah. that. Um, and so it's pronounced slightly differently. Um, and I don't know if I've heard it properly since she's done that. I don't think it's been in the last year or so. Uh, but in any case, uh, Matt Dillon's character is a really, really bigoted, um, very individualistic and selfish police officer, even though he does rescue her um, in the middle of the movie. Um, he um, sexually assaults her during a, a frisk. It is absolutely 100%, I think, the hardest part of the movie to watch. Oh, yeah. Hands down. Um, yeah. Uh, I would say a close second is Michael Pena's daughter, uh, Michael Pena's character's daughter almost getting shot by uh, a gun. And a man oh, thinking my. that uh, uh, another person was stealing from him. And I mean, it was just. Oh. Yes. Those moments, but but back to 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 Ryan Philippi's, you know, um, opposite arc to Ludacris's character. So you know he's not happy with that. Um, he um, tries to go to his boss. His boss says, um, "I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna say anything. I'm a black man. I've worked my ass off and followed the rules." And he's talking about the unwritten rules about being a police officer and mm -hmm. it's historic creation to be a slave roundup organization. Um, mm -hmm. And he's like, I'm not going to risk that. I'm not going to do that for you. A rookie. I'm going to ruin my career. Um, nor, and, and it would probably ruin your career too. So, you know, shut up, keep your mouth shut. I don't want to cause any problems, Lieutenant. I just want a new partner. Oh, I understand. Your partner's a racist prick, but you don't want to stir up any bad feelings with him. Well, he's been on the force for a long time. And, uh, 17 years. And I do have to work here, sir. So, you don't mind that there's a racist prick on the force. You just don't want him to ride in your car. If you need me to go on record about this, sir, I will. That'd be great. Write a full report. Because I'm anxious to understand how an obvious bigot could have gone undetected in this department for 17 years. 11 of which he was under my personal supervision. Which doesn't speak very highly of my managerial skills. But that's not your concern. I can't wait to read it. What if I said I wanted a new partner for personal reasons? So now you're saying he's not a racist prick, you just don't like him? Yes, sir. That's not a good enough reason. Well then, I guess I should think of a better one and get back to you. So you think I'm asking you to make one up? No, sir. I, I just can't think of one right now. You want to know what I heard? I heard it was a case of uncontrollable flatulence. You want me to say yes, flatulence? It's not him, you. You have uncontrollable flatulence, and you're too embarrassed to ride with anybody else, so you're requesting a one-man car. I'm not comfortable with that, Lieutenant. I wouldn't be either. Which is why I understand your need for privacy. Well, just like I'm sure you understand how hard a black man has to work to get to Say where I am, in a racist fucking organization like the LAPD. And how easily that can be taken away. Now, that being said, it's your decision. You can put your career and mine on the line in pursuit of a just cause. Or you can admit to having an embarrassing problem of a personal nature. 
Yeah. And I think he pretty much says, what would it say about me if I had known about this behavior and let it go on for so long? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Exactly the kind of um, exactly the kind of like selfish. I'm only looking after number one kind of kind of behaviors. And and and. You can you can say this movie doesn't depict uh, true or at least uh, adjacent um, prejudicial encounters, but I, I I think many of these situations are not far from the truth. Maybe their character, uh, maybe their caricatures of them, and they could have been handled a little bit better. Of course, I'll say they could have been handled much better, but. Um, in a two-hour movie, you're not going to get that. Uh, right. Film, um, you know, if, if we're just talking about film and TV, it's really hard to flesh out that nuance sometimes. And in, in, in a, a two-hour movie, you just got to go for it, I guess. Yeah, a nuance. That's a perfect word because um, that's all we're hearing about these days is is incredible nuance associated with all of these topics and to our movie is not going to get to the nuance and, and the nuance is good. We need the, we need mm-hmm. the discussion of the nuance and it is, we live in the nuance. What was that? <laughs> we live in the, nuance. exactly. We live in the nuance. Um, so whether you're on the side, I guess my point is when, whether you're on the side of this movie is sort of, uh, it shouldn't be used because it's um, it doesn't depict it well enough or you're on the side. Well, even if it doesn't depict it well enough, um, it's still a learning experience. It's always going to be a learning experience. And maybe, maybe be somewhere in the middle and point it out. Absolutely. And I think that's where where I live. You know, anytime I'm using these films, I'm. I am wondering what are students taking out of these films? Is there a way that I can help them flesh out the nuance? And what are the ways that we can talk about psychology within this film, whether it's portrayed accurately, what's portrayed not as accurately. What if this movie was made now? How could directors flesh out this nuance in today's world as well? And I think that one is definitely that last question is um, a lot, a, a clearer answer the farther out we get from the kind of world that we lived in in 2003, 2004 mm-hmm. versus the world we live in almost 20 years later. And I think right. there is a, a marked difference f- um, using this film to discuss racism, systemic racism, biases, stereotypes, prejudice, all of those ideas in a film like this, this is a much better film to do it in because um, you can almost take these vignettes, as we'll do here in a few minutes. We almost take these little vignettes and explore just the um, little things about those vignettes. Um, if you're in, say, like a content course. Um, so, again, it's better to use a film like this with its vignettes than to go, OK, let's go all the way back to the beginning of film and of film history and here I'll play you 1915 D.W. Griffith's um, Birth of a Nation, where it has a clear right. message of one side is right, one side is wrong. Of course, you can imagine which sides D.W. Griffith would have <laughs> done, um, <clears throat> the white side. Uh, mm-hmm. 
versus a filmmaker like Paul Haggis, who made it a, an intentional decision to not give any of these characters any sort of redeeming qualities. And the character that is built up to be um, a, a, somehow a hero ends up being one of the other villains, Ryan Phillippe's right. character, because he shoots... Lorenz Tate, who ultimately is another detective's brother, that whole story there. Um, and then. And was unarmed. Yeah, and, and un- unarmed. And also, it's something in majorly in common, both carrying around the same of uh, the uh, of, uh, a medallion, right? St. Christ- Christopher's. Yeah. Yep. St. Christopher, but the actual, like, man, right? A figurine? It was a figurine? Mm hmm. Oh my goodness. Yes. I, I completely agree with everything you just said. And I hope that we as psychology educators are helping our students flesh this out as well. So we are going to take a quick break. And when we come back from the break with uh, Dr. Karina Malavanti, we are going to uh, dissect some of those vignettes in uh, some of the um, other kinds of classes that you might see this uh, course in. So stick around. We'll be right back. Howdy. Thanks for listening to this episode. We hope you're enjoying the conversation. Over the past two years, the podcast has grown, and that's mostly in part to folks like you, the listeners. We've also had wonderful luck receiving support from the Society for the Teaching of Psychology, APA Division II Small Partnerships Grant. It's been a fun ride, and we want to keep it going. So we need your help. There are several ways that you can support this show. You can share episodes with your social media networks so we can grab new listeners. You can join our fledgling Patreon program. You can contribute directly using PayPal. Or you can purchase some sweet merchandise with our logo at our Spreadshirt merch store. All of those things can be found on the website cinemasyc.com pod.swanpsych.com. But perhaps the best thing that you can do is to keep listening and leave us feedback on Facebook or Twitter so we know you've listened. Thanks. And now back to the show. And we are back with Dr. Karina Malavanti talking about Crash, the 2004 film directed and written by Paul Haggis. On huge ensemble cast. And in this segment, uh, Karina, I wanted to uh, take your idea of different classes and sort of talk about the vignettes in uh, as examples of these various concepts and terms you might see um, represented in the film. So since we're both um, cognitive and and neuro folks, um, I thought it might be a good idea to start with the things that we know and go on from there. I know we the two of us are are sort of uh, journey persons um, and mm-hmm. the courses that we teach. So we can get it all, folks. Don't worry about it. But I think we'll start with our bread and butter first. So. The biggest thing I think one could grab from um, from a cognitive perspective in this film is the C in the ABC model um, of aggression, of 
of uh, prejudice or of um, in-groups and out-groups and group dynamics and all of these kinds of things. And that is stereotypes. So the C, cognition, these would be stereotypes. And these would be stereotypes that we immediately think of when encountering um, different people, uh, whether they are in our in-group and out-group. So what are uh, some, of the, some of the vignettes that really shape um, these implicit stereotypes that you see in the film? Yeah, so I think... This whole film has it's just has so many different vignettes or scenes that have stereotypes that are depicted. But you know, just from the get-go, if we're talking about uh Jean's character and the way that, you know, she speaks about Hispanic people and you know, the locksmith, it's mm-hmm. uh, and her housekeeper is there as mm-hmm. well and and can hear it and you know that's a very easy one for us to to dissect right from the get-go yeah so um and her husband's right there trying to smooth over the whole thing like what no what are you what are you saying these things and uh it's it's very clear that um gene uh sandra bullock has no respect for either of those two people Right. I mean, and even one of, you know, the attorney general, her husband's co-workers there who is black, and she's also includes black people in her tirade as well. And it's just, wow, <laughs> it's just a lot. <laughs> and he he does try to identify with, wow, there's, a lot has happened tonight. Um, and she immediately just shuts him down. Yeah. Uh, tells him to stop treating her like a child, which um, is a, sort of a... Pre- sort of a projection stereotype I felt like because um, the way that he was acting she was perceiving it as as um, him treating her like a child but he was just trying to calm her down so I, I think it's uh, I think it's quite interesting um, one one stereotype that I found uh, interesting in the movie was uh Farhad's character. I think I believe that is the character name. His stereotype was thinking that again being in Los Angeles, Los Angeles Los Angeles is um quite heavily Hispanic. Uh, having grown up there myself, I can attest to that. Um and he has this idea of that you know this um this Lat- Latino is going to steal his stuff because he's a locksmith and he could break into his safe or whatever. Um, and he's just like, no. Excuse me. Excuse me, sir. You finish? I replaced the lock. But you got a real problem with that door. You fixed the lock? No, I replaced the lock. But... You got to fix that door. Just fix the lock. Listen to me. What you need is a new door. I need new door? Yeah. Okay. How much? I don't... Sir, you're going to have to call somebody that sells doors. You tried to cheat me, right? Huh? You have a friend that fixed door? Nah, I don't have a friend that fixed doors, bro. Then go and fix the fucking lock, you cheater. 
You know what? Why don't you just pay for the lock and I won't charge you for the time? You don't fix the lock. I pay, but you think I'm stupid? You fix the fucking lock. You cheater. Hey, I'd appreciate if you stop calling me names. Then fix the fucking lock. I replaced the lock. You gotta fix the fucking door. You cheat. You fucking cheater. Fine. Don't pay. What? Have a good night. What? No. Wait. Wait. You come back here. You fix the lock. Come here. You fix my lock. Fix the fucking lock. But he takes it too far. And then there's the there's the viewer stereotype represented here. So a an American stereotype gets represented quite drastically uh, on this Farhad character because then this uh, he is um, completely mashed as a Persian man into the broader Middle Eastern stereotype of uh, a paranoid, um, violent but strong belief in uh, God through Islam, one-dimensional character. And, it, and again, his, his only redemption is the fact that he did not accidentally kill anyone. Right. I mean, I, I think that is one of the stereotypes that I found really hard to talk about. I mean, if I'm being honest, when we are talking about just a few years after 9-11 mm-hmm. and the fact that so many people were putting all Persian people, all Middle Eastern people into one group, the out group, you know, one group, them, not us, us being American. That was really hard for our friends, you know, that were not, you know, part of any kind of group or anything close to, to anybody that would hurt us. And so we do see that. And because there is no redemption for this character and there is no, no one even trying really besides his daughter and his wife, there's no one even trying to help him. Um, and he's really a victim of circumstance and all the things that have gone wrong at his store, all of the robberies. And he, he's just really trying to survive mm-hmm. like we all are. That that is a very challenging part of the movie for me. Yeah, because uh, it leaves the viewer with a, a single lasting impression, other than right. you know the lead up to it. He mm-hmm. is left as a um, caricature, as I said before. He's left as a as a shell of a representation of a vast group of very different people. Um, that cannot be lumped together. Uh, and yet, as you said, just a few years after 9-11, it was still being done, even in uh, the, uh, we'll call it, tossed of places like Los Angeles, right? Very multicultural mm-hmm. city. Mm-hmm. Um, and even though there are lots of places of institutional segregation, um in and around this vast area like it's it's a pretty spread out city uh that we take this one character or paul haggis takes this one character and just shrinks them all the way down that's what you're left with right and at least you know for a lot of the other um 
groups of, in, of, of people, you know, we have multiple representations. Um, so we have a couple of different representations of Hispanic individuals, a couple of different representations for Black individuals, you know, but we don't have, we only have just the one really, because they don't do, I think, the, the daughter justice as well. No, they just, God, I, I feel like they cast someone who could do naggy pretty you know nagging pretty well mm -hmm. um yeah but they they don't give her enough they don't give her enough to do and enough to prevent but then again we always have to come back to the don't have enough time but right you know that of course comes down to a film decision rather than a than a right. than a psych decision of course we can't can't be paul right, haggis can. uh <laughs> So we're we're kind of stuck with that. So um, you brought up like in-group, out-group biases. And one of the things that I've been doing recently is preparing for my great courses. So coming up with research on um, cognitive biases for this uh, course that I'm writing. And <clears throat> I'm doing stereotypes. And I'm specifically talking about some of these in-group and out-group biases. Um, and... One that is particularly pronounced in the film is the outgroup bias, uh, which gen I mean, they're depending on what you what context you're talking in can be a little nuanced in its definition. But the specific one that I'm thinking of is the one that I did the most um, reading on, which was the outgroup bias is this um, homogenous group with no nuanced differences um they all look the same you know insert group here x mm -hmm. looks the same blah 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 or sounds the same or dresses the same you know all of the there is no differences among this group everyone is the same and so if you see going to the kernel of truth hypothesis if you observe uh, one of these members uh, do something negative, then you attribute that whole negative thing because of this one observation to mm -hmm. um, the entire group. And and if you do that often, you know, you create these illusory correlations. And of course, um, it just confirms then using another bias, it confirms Every time you see somebody act this way, it confirms that previous stereotype. And because the group is homogenous, uh, you don't see anyone for their individualness, their behavior. You see them as the group doing the one behavior. They don't they're not personified. They don't have their own agency. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and. So I think that we have a couple of different instances of that in this film. Um, the one that is coming to mind right now is was actually just spoken about. Um, and I it was a when the when Don Cheadle's character was being told about his uh, his brother's file and the third strike. And the way that that individual, you know, and I'm forgetting exactly what he was to the attorney general, but he worked in the attorney general's office and he was saying, you know, man, you know, he had the same chances as you did. And but it came across as extremely um, belittling to his family 
and to his race. And, you know, I think we can expound on that a lot. Um, but, you know, he also said something like, you know, don't, you know, don't, we need a hero to come out of this. And I, that part struck me as really interesting. It's not just an example of how the system sometimes can be flawed um, in trying to, in the pursuit of justice, right? They were trying to get something, you know, trying to get justice for a black man that had had died and had been gunned down. But in in that same way, they were pressuring Don Cheadle's Don Cheadle's character, and I think that part of that was, you know, this stereotype that all black people were doing drugs, and that that was also the reason why his brother had been in so much trouble. And I thought that that was actually um, that that always for my students is a. Um, is a topic is is a conversation starter. It's a topic that they really want to dive into because it they really my students are really interested in legal psychology and psychology and the law and you know and we're law and order and how do we use this in context? And so, you know, when we use those kinds of stereotypes in that way, then we're we're gonna have some problems. And so, you know, that outgroup bias was strong in that in that depiction. Yeah, I love that. I love that one. And um, the I think that's the only story that really has that much depth is Don Cheadle's character and how sort of his arc connects the whole group of people together. Um, I, I, I will say that his character is the one that connects the whole thing together because he was a producer on the movie. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, of course, his his character is going to be the one that uh, that gets to carry the connection all the way through. And mm-hmm. you're absolutely right uh, about um, that being a, a, a real good depiction of, of outgroup bias there. Um, one that I was thinking of. Well. I go back to, I, I feel like uh, Michael Pena's Daniel Ruiz character got got the brunt of it, um, and I yeah. think there there is some some I don't know uh, some implicit uh, bashing on uh, the inhabitants of Mexican California um, mm-hmm. before before settlers moved in and and colonists moved in sort of change the nature of the game and some some latent like real strong and growing up in LA you do hear this a lot and it's actually kind of interesting um i worked in a storage facility in the San Fernando Valley which um for many years was uh white suburbia but and you know starting in about the 60s and 70s and into the 80s far more um groups started sort of the west side was white and the east side was uh hispanic and it sort of started coming together in the center um but i would say now it's demographics i haven't been there in in quite some time but um i would say it's the demographics of the san fernando valley are um gotta be plurality or majority hispanic now mm-hmm. and specifically of of the hispanic group we're, we're talking latin americans uh for sure uh but um in this tiny little pocket in the eastern san fernando valley where i worked 
um, surrounding it, well, maybe not surrounding it, but, you know, one border of it, I suppose, was um, a a place where Filipinos came and settled. So uh, several neighborhoods where they came and settled. And so there was a large Filipino population there, too. And, of course, Filipinos have a history with uh, the Spanish as well as the Chinese, mm-hmm. the Japanese, etc. It's very, it's a very multi-ethnic um, group of people. Um, rich history um, on those those small islands, and this group of people, you would think, with a shared history of being, uh, let's, we'll, we'll say, um, forcibly colonized by the Spanish, and then sort of. Um, the United States took over, they really had a negative view of the Hispanic residents, a really Mm -hmm. negative view. So they saw what the rest of LA thought of Hispanics, which is sort of like the heel, which is awful. Um, And they adopted that as they moved, as they, as they moved into these areas and they, I saw a lot of people think that they were better and it is, it's a, it's a, it's, it's an interesting dynamic um, working in that place. And everybody always was like, oh, there's a white guy here. That's weird. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, but in, in, in any case, I kind of felt that. Uh, so back to my point about the, uh, Michael Pena's character. I felt that he was the brunt of the outgroup bias far more times than anyone else in the movie. Mm-hmm. I think he received it from multiple places uh, and never did anything to deserve it. Yeah, actually, you know, now that I think about it, he might be the one good person, though, quote unquote, right? Because. Um, I guess I overgeneralized earlier, but yeah, you're right. You know, the tirade with Gene, he could have been angry about it. If he just put the keys down and and walked out, he had, he just, he always did his job with his head down. He'd really tried with the, you know, the, the, the Persian uh, man and, you know, let him know that while he replaced the lock, but it was the door that's having problems. Uh, he documented it and then didn't even charge him for the lock. You know, then even when he was being almost rubbed, was like, take the money, please just don't harm me. Just go, you know, and still. Um, yeah. Now that I think um, about it, you're right. I don't think he has. Uh, maybe it was. Uh, maybe it was an interesting love letter. I'll, I take that back then. I mean, he does get the brunt of all of it. And I think that's historical. Um, but. Even from a, I believe Paul Haggis is British. Um, no, he's Canadian. Okay, still, uh, <laughs> not not Angelino. Um, so I do think there was that that represents some sort of latent um, idea, sort of implicit ideas that Los Angeles has about um, its lovely residents, Hispanic residents. Right, but but you know that's not. What we experienced was different from what he experienced. Yes, that's true. Yes, um, you're absolutely right. And and so, but but if if it's true that his character is not is not found to be 
at all in the wrong in any of these, uh, then I think then Paul Haggis had a had a had a goal for this character in mind. Yeah, yeah. You're right. You know, he and it definitely was maybe like he's kind of like quote unquote the victim of this outgroup bias. That he didn't deserve any of it. Um, yeah. you know, and I think that that can be really a challenging, you know, assertion for all of us that are taking this into account, this film into our classes or who are just simply watching it for fun. You know, where can we find these little nuggets of like, oh, okay, we had thought that there was no re- no good character and there actually was one. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, I love Michael Pena uh, always. Oh, yeah. He's so good. Uh, and speaking of him coming back and playing a role as an LAPD officer uh, in the film End of Watch, which is also really good listeners, so you should go watch that. But, but prepare, bring tissues. Um, so I wanted to end the episode here by pivoting to Social Psych, which is a course that I have actually used Crash in. I used it once. Um, the first time I ever taught social psychology, this was at Marquette, uh, university in the spring of, um, 2017. And it's the first time they needed, they had an, uh, they had a emergency and they needed somebody to teach social. They had asked me to teach cog and I was like, yeah, I can totally do that. And they're like, oh, can you do social too? And I'm like, sure. Close enough. <laughs> because <laughs> i had to i i had as a graduate student i did get to teach as the instructor of record social cognition so yeah. i was like yeah i can i could get there uh so i used crash uh so this was in my early um formative my early formative years of just experimenting with films in my classes and of course look at look at me now um and so i used it and the my audience was uh largely white um being up in milwaukee largely white um and milwaukee is one of the more segregated cities uh to still exist uh so the segregation is still pretty pretty heavy uh, there's a fairly solid line uh street between white and black neighborhoods um, wow. in the city. Um, I mean, it's obviously not segregated by right, right, actual just... law, but yeah, just just the the neighborhood lines, redlining, all that. Mm-hmm. Now the schools are the schools are still fairly segregated. Um, so um, my students didn't necessarily get the idea of having this because I think in 2016, 2017, um, they didn't know what was to come yet. I suppose maybe a little bit Trayvon Martin had already Mm -hmm. occurred. Um, excuse me. Um, Michael Brown, there was an incident, uh, the previous fall in Milwaukee regarding, uh, a black man and a police officer, but the police officer was black as well. So they had a little bit of it, but I, I don't think they fully got this one. Um, I think because of what we talked about earlier in its controversy. Um, and I think it stems from the topics you would use this this film for, 
which I did select it for, which were things like overt racism, um, microaggressions, systemic racism, and institutional and systemic racism really weren't things on their radar. And I, and I think that one, I think that fell flat. Yeah, I think, I think sometimes that sometimes we want this movie to, to be this kind of blinking light of like, look, some of this stuff happens. This wasn't just somebody's imagination that they just made up of people who are horribly racist and prejudiced. Like, you know, that there's, there's these little nuggets of truth um, that people have experienced it. And maybe it would not have all experienced it just in this one city or in one day, because that's really what we have going on here. But that there are, that there are, there are people out there, right, that have experienced this. And now we know it, especially with people using cell phones to record encounters, we see it much more often. And I think that that has been hard to grapple with, you know, um, especially as somebody who's, what, 20 years old, and especially people of color too. Um, but, you know, being raised to, you know, always listen to police officers. They've, they're supposed to be good guys. They're supposed to have your back. And now we've got this movie coming out of nowhere telling us that there might be problems with the system. Whoa. You know, and then also this movie is like, it just seems like caricatures. Mm, maybe I'm not going to take this as seriously. Um, and so then we have to kind of just say, hey, student, let's have this conversation. Let's talk about why there could be hidden truths within this movie that is also imperfect but can be used uh, effectively yeah and i think that's where i think that's the um preface uh that this movie needs in a um in a social psych course specifically Mm -hmm. in a social Mm -hmm. psych course uh because i think you can dissect some of the scenes if you just took the scene by scene and not um, have students watch the whole movie in a cognitive course. You could sort of dissect out the uh, stereotypes here or there and just leave the rest mm-hmm. of the narrative on the cutting right. room floor. But I think mm-hmm. for a social psych course, you have to watch the whole thing in context. Right. Um, and I think we did a pretty good job of naming all the, the various scenes. I think, I think it's safe to say that the whole movie is just one social site concept after another. And even though yeah. the movie came out in 2004, we're still talking about each of those vignettes. We're still, we're still um, harping on um, how they didn't say anything about Asian women and driving and yet depicted it. Um, at the, at the very op- somewhat opening of the movie. Um, and then the, um, the idea of a white uh, elected official who's going for re-election talking about this monolith of a black vote or this monolith of a law and order vote and how the two mm-hmm. things are seemingly uh, antagonistic or at odds with each other, you know, I, I thought that was, and, and you never hear from, you never hear from that character again. Right. Oh my gosh. Yeah. 
And and that's all we hear every election cycle is right. these block blocks of voters, BL, BLOC of voters that don't represent. And how many times in 2020 did we hear um, the Hispanic vote and then somebody immediately coming in after them saying, like, we're not a monolith. <laughs> yeah. Florida Hispanic individuals vote very differently from California Latinos, you know. <laughs> Oh my goodness. And and so like it, you have to take the whole thing and 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 each one sort of go okay, we can put this scene over here and we can put this scene over here and then just, you know, take those two or three chapters of um a social psych textbook and just throw crash all over it. Um but there was one thing that uh I thought was interesting and most social psych textbooks these days uh, have a reducing prejudice chapter. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it explains a lot, uh, several strategies, both in the, uh, in the literature and, uh, sort of in practice and in, in an applied sense. And <laughs> this, this film severely lacks any of that. Yeah. And that's, that's what we needed, um, to really make this film, a teachable moment. And I think one that would have been deserving of, you know, best picture um, would have been, wow. How do we actually, how do we face the music here? Yeah. Amen. It's not enough. It's not enough to say that we're imperfect. I think that a lot of us know that, but how do we actually go about being, you know, anti-racist? Yeah. Which is uh, the way the conversation has shifted in the last Mm -hmm. few years. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think Ryan Philippi's character tries to do that, but of course he falls victim to the same biases that, um, many of us have and, uh, acknowledging them is really my, uh, is, is my path toward being, uh, an ally and anti-racist and all of that is you got to first acknowledge them. And this is my message in my cognitive biases courses. You got to acknowledge them first. If you don't know if they exist, if you don't know that they exist or if they exist or when they occur, then you're never going to be able to move past them because they're going to right. be this silent puppet master controlling. And some people don't care to be controlled by their biases but you know i care so i'm gonna make the effort to do that and i think you're right this movie could have been a little bit better on that front yes and i think you're right we care and i think that's why even with some of the challenges of this movie it can be used to have conversation tough conversations with our students and for the most part you know i think we're starting to see people who select into a psychology major that that do care about these conversations and that if they want to be a clinician if they want to be a therapist they have to care it's in their code of ethics exactly And I want to thank Dr. Karina Malavanti for joining me to discuss Crash. Before we say goodbye, Karina, is there anything that you would like to plug? Uh, where can folks uh, find out more about what you do? Sure. I'm on Twitter at K Malavanti. 
and on Facebook in the Society for the Teaching of Psychology Facebook page. It's uh, APA Division 2 if you're a psychology educator or a psychology and buff edu- psychology and film educator. Man, we would love to have conversations with you in that group. I also usually attend STP's annual conference on teaching. It's virtual this year. We just found out today. (sighs) But love making friends. Say la vie. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And um, you you also go to the Southwestern Psych Association stuff. Yes. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And you should you should come back to the MPA. I'm just saying, where is where is SPA usually held? Is it does it move around? It does move okay. around, um, but this next spring it's supposed to be in New Orleans. So we'll see. Fingers oh, crossed. Wow, I don't know. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> we have not heard anything this week, but. Who knows? <laughs> well, I'm 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 fingers crossing for you. Uh, and uh, of course, we always give love to STP uh, at the end of the show, because that's where all you lovely people come from on my list to chat with uh, on movies. So thank you again. Talking this stuff. Karina, I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. That's going to do it for this episode. Until the next episode. Thanks for listening.